Our guest today is Grant Bentley from Melbourne, who has been working and studying in various fields of natural therapies since 1987. Grant is a qualified homeopath and naturopath and has studied clinical hypnosis and has a postgrad diploma in Ericksonian psychotherapy. Grant is the current principal and senior lecturer of the Victorian College of Classical Homeopathy, VCCH, where he has been since 1995. The college, under Grant's leadership, has been clinically trialing the relationship between facial structure and successful chronic homeopathic prescribing since 2000. Graduating practitioners use facial analysis with all of their chronic cases. Homeopathic facial analysis is something we will be delving into in our talk today, along with how we can use homeopathy to help our patients who have PANDAS. PANDAS is a topic which Grant has also authored a book on, and it is aimed at parents and uh, helping them to understand how homeopathy can help. I was so inspired and excited by homeopathic facial analysis after our interview that I immediately enrolled in Grant's course to learn this new technique, and I am excited to be using it in my practice. I encourage other homeopaths to get in touch with VCCH as well to find out how you can add this exciting and accurate tool to your practice for better prescribing. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout podcast, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now your host, Eugenie Kruger. Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangout. Today, we get to hang out with homeopath, naturopath, author, educator. I'm sure there's a few more titles there I've forgotten. Grant Bentley, all the way from Victoria. Welcome, Grant. Hi, Eugenie. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm very excited to have a chat with you today, uh, especially with your facial analysis. That's something that I'm super interested in and I can't wait to learn about more. But we've also got some other meaty topics to chat about today. But I'm wondering, before we get started, can you tell us uh, a little bit about how you first were introduced to homeopathy? was first introduced to homeopathy by the naturopathy, which I think a lot of people are. The naturopathy was... There was an extension. I was doing a lot with psychotherapy and psychological medicine beforehand. I realized that there were certain limitations. You had to improve the physical body. It wasn't just all about the mind. I think in this, in this day and age where we talk about the unification of mind and body, we sort of think of it as a one-way street from mind to body, but of course it works the other way as well. So without the right nutritional support or the right physical support, you could have psychological insights, but that may not necessarily improve your overall health. So I did the naturopathy course, and then I was around about halfway through that when I was introduced to homeopathy. I read a few books about it, and there was just something so shamanic and so cool and so well thought out, and the authors were so well credentialed that I think almost from the first paragraph it had me had me in hook, line, and sinker. Marjorie Blackie, I think, was the very first time you passing book that I or author that I ever read, and 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 yeah, she she got me into it, and I've been doing it ever since it's about 30 years now amazing and you're also the principal of the victorian college of classical homeopathy right uh, when did you start that and how did that come about that it was started by a person before me in the 90s or early 90s and i was a student there and then after she was ready to retire from it because you know, as you know, it can be a bit of a hard game in alternative medicine for every every dollar you get back, you've got to put in $2 worth of effort almost. And, and you know, so it was just time and, and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time and I started taking over the college from there and we've been running ever since and that was about 1994, 95. And um, yeah, we've kept it going. It's changed form a little bit. It's gone from a bricks and mortar college, first in Blackburn, then in Mitcham in Melbourne. It's totally an online college now. It's wonderful that we can do that these days. It really does. Uh, it's very handy for somebody like myself over here in Perth, sitting there and drooling about that facial analysis course that you've got on your website and so excited to get cracking into that. Speaking of facial analysis, 
How did you get into that? And can you tell our listeners a little bit about it? Because one of the things I try to do with this podcast, because it is for the general public, I want to show them the smorgasbord of tools that we have as homeopaths to be able to help people. It literally feels like we can never run out of options to help our clients. And facial analysis is another way of doing that. And it's something we've never talked about on this podcast in all 50 odd episodes. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is? Yeah, of course. Like most practitioners, look, by the time I became a practicing homeopath, I already had a number of strings to my bow. And the problem that I found for me, I'm not saying it's everyone's story, but the problem that I found for me was that homeopathy was a little too hit and hit. However, when it did hit, it hit in such a deep and far away that it became, it was undeniable that there was something there. But it was about systematizing it for me in a way that I could make it more reproducible. I had no idea what that was. I tried various different systems that were around in the late 90s, early 2000s. I, I won't go through them because they didn't work for me, so I don't want to see my <laughs> mouthing anyone because I'm not. But it didn't, it didn't improve my success rating. As you previously explained, I was also an educator and I'd been involved in, in adult education for about 12 years at that time. I had read the, uh, the organ on a number of times and I'd also read when it came to the miasm section books like Roberts and Allen and so on. Now, Roberts and Allen are, are interesting because and it just shows you, you pick up what you want to pick up. It was only about after the false or fixed reading that I realized that Alan was talking about facial features and the miasms. And for this fourth or fifth time, I don't, it, it just dawned on me that if it was true, and it's a big if, but if it was true that the miasms created and formed facial features in their own design to the degree of which they, they exert their influence, then theoretically, if you could read what each miasm was imprinting, you could not only tell the signs of the miasm, but you could tell to how dominant it was. And so the more syphilitic features, for example, that would be on a face, Theoretically, the more syphilitically dominant that person would be. So then I started thinking to myself, well, considering that Hahnemann absolutely stresses over and over and over again in the sixth edition of the Organon, the absolute importance of any constitutional treatment to have its basis in the miasms. I mean, this is the big difference between acute and chronic prescribing. Acute prescribing is using the signs and symptoms as they present at the moment that that patient comes into your clinic. However, if you're doing chronic prescribing, Hahnemann is absolutely adamant that the difference is the inclusion of the miasm into the process and that you must choose a remedy that is miasmatically suitable to the patient. And so if, if a patient is syphilitically dominant, you shouldn't be choosing a syphilitically dominant remedy. Mm. And so I thought that makes sense, but I don't understand how. And this was where the really big problem has come about since Harleman's time is, is that the instructions are there of what to do, but not how to do it. He didn't know either. His life ended. Other people tried their best. We've gone down the pathway of pathology in particular that we attribute destructive pathology to the syphilitic and inflammatory pathology to the psychotic and so on. And we, we try and do it that way. But, it, you know, even Bonninghausen right back in the beginning 
was saying that that's not a good move. This it, it, it's true because when people get illnesses, they then they display inflammatory processes, they display destructive mm-hmm. processes, and it's also true that when you look at each remedy, you will see, say, something like sulfur, for example, if we take that prince of antisorics, then, but it, it, it's also very, very destructive, has tons of ulcerations and so on. So what we ended up doing is going down a process, well, that's just the syphilitic element of Sora or that is the psychotic element of Sora. And so it ended up with all remedies are multi-miasmatic and all people are multi-miasmatic. And so now in the end, we're no further ahead. Mm. It doesn't tell you anything. And, and, and so this is where the idea of dominance comes in. The one thing that you, if we're taking, let's stick with sulfur, right? So if we're taking sulfur or any of the antisorics into account, they all have this centrifugal action. So they're all push from whatever is going to be the negative influence, the inflammation, the infection, whatever it is, from the center to the circumference, that's their action. So what Hardeman's sort of talking about is that all of the, this centrifugal action or outward motion becomes really dominant when you're looking at a miasm. Now what we do or what we're meant to do is select a, a, a medicine for that same dominance that's in the remedy to the, the patient. So if I figure out that you're sorically dominant, then a remedy like sulfur will help because what it's doing now is just doubling up on your own vital force and it's a bit, it's, it's attempt to try and stabilize itself. Mm. So it's working with what the body wants and, and, and working in the way that the body wants. I guess the main takeaway from this is that what I was trying to do was that I went back to Alan and Roberts because if I could figure out somehow that you belong as a patient to miasm X, mm. then when I finish my repertorization, all I really have to do is choose a remedy from miasm X mm. and that will help you along. So it's, it's, it's also seeing, it's seeing the miasm as not something inherently destructive that gets worse each generation, as Kent said, because that actually goes against how evolution works. You mm. know, I mean, there, there's a real problem with that. But if you see the miasms as a force of action, that your vital force is trying to take its programmed into you, and it's a force of action that is taken to protect the vital inner core, Mm. then now they begin to make sense and now it begins to understand why it's important to choose a remedy from exactly that same miasmatic group. So, for example, and if I'm talking too much, you just tell me. But No, that's uh, great. For example, if, you're, if you belong to the psychotic group, the, now remember everything's about protecting that vital inner core. So that psychotic group, psychotic people have inherit, they are given a vital force where in a chronic situation, it will try and envelop any sort of infection and imprison it. So if you come along with a remedy like sepia that does exactly the same thing, then you're doubling up on the bodies of the already pre-programmed state of how to rebalance itself. But if I now give you a remedy like sulfur, it might be highly indicated, but it's telling you to push it out. And that's not what the psychotic person's vital force is programmed to do. So that's why you get so many aggravations when you choose a remedy that does not belong to the same miasmatic group as the person that you're treating. So, you know, all the way through homeopathic literature was that 
it was the best remedy, but it either A, failed to relieve or it caused a massive aggravation. And that's come up with thousands and thousands of arguments as to why that would be so. But my argument, or at least my explanation as to why that's so, is really simple. Your body is programmed, in this case, to encapsulate and imprison. We're giving a medicine whose instruction is to push out. Mm. You're going against the program of the vital force, no matter how well it's repertorized on symptoms. So your body's going to react either A, not at all, or B, negatively. And so since I've been able to employ the, the miasm successfully, I've found that my aggravations have dropped to almost zero. You, you, people will either not respond or they'll respond positively, but they really won't negatively react. And if they do, then I know immediately I need to recheck the miasm of that person. Mm. Essentially how I, I got onto this was a really long-winded task, so I won't go into it too much. But I, I accepted that there were remedies like sulfur, fluia, and mercury that were they're already designated anti-miasmatic remedies. So when I got a good result from somebody constitutionally, remember acute doesn't count, mm-hmm. then I would just take pictures of their face and after a while I'd start to see what they had in common. And it's that commonality that, I attributed to the the influence of of one particular miasm. And so over the years, with a bit of help, it wasn't all just me, but with a uh, over the years we've been able to develop an entire dossier where we can say, okay, well, that is a that structure on the face is a psychotic structure, that one's a, a psychotic and yeah, I mean a, a psoric and that one's a syphilitic. And so when patients come to my clinic, then we always get them to do some photographs. We then assess those photographs. That will tell me what miasm it is. Mm. And then from that repertorization, which is pretty standard, it's just generals, mainly a few mentals. The reason that I could go back to the generals, um, because when I was saying earlier about how there were a lot of different things that I tried in the late 90s, early 2000s. They were more mental things, you know, that a staphys angria patient will do one, two, and three, whereas a causticum patient won't do that. They're more likely to do four, five, and six. I actually now, with hindsight, think that's limiting the remedies. I think every time you do a drug profile, you're taking, again, if we use sulfur, you're taking some 15,000 different rubrics, narrowing it down to 10 or so, and then building a story around those 10. Doesn't mean that, that, that the story around those 10 are wrong, but it's definitely incomplete. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I, I've learned to do along the way is unlearn the, the training of remedy profiling and I just go back to the generals. In under normal repertorization circumstances, you wouldn't be able to do that because if you're doing, I don't know, worse for sweets, worse at night, worse when the wind blows, worse for a full moon and worse for something else, you you, you end up with about 60 or 30, you know, 30 to 60 remedies. So this is why people go, went down, homeopathy went down that pathway of trying to individualize a bit more because the, the generals just give you too broad a picture. Mm-hmm. But the prop, the thing with, with the facial analysis, I can cut that, even if it's 70, I can cut it by, by, by seven and bring it down to 10 straight. Wow. So you're going to have to give the, because I think the homeopaths that just listened to you had their minds just blown, just like I did. I just had such a big bomb explosion in my head when you were talking about aggravations and how you have to have the remedy that matches that miasm. But I think our general public is going, what is he talking about? But I wonder with the facial analysis, can you give them like a couple of little takeaways? So just, just to uh, prime their interest. So for example, if somebody had a frown on the 
right eye or, or a dimple on the left? Or can you give some examples and then what sort of things you would look for? And then just a couple of remedies that might match just to tease our audience. Yeah, sure, sure. So what we do is we get around about five to seven pictures. I can't even remember now. I've done it that many times. <laughs> I have to stop to think about it, but we do a front-on picture, just no smiling. And what that's all about is that it's, you've got to, it's all about sizes, shapes, and angles. So first thing to understand, and I want to get this right out there, it is not about any kind of prediction and it's not about any kind of face reading. I don't understand your character. I don't know anything more about you than what you look like. It's also not about appearance, so it's not it's not about pretty people belong to this group and not so pretty belong to the other. It, it nothing to do with that. It, it's it's all about shapes, sizes, and angles. So what I do when if I had your picture, for example, I have a front-on picture and I'm looking at whether or not your lips are more full or whether or not they're thinner, how wide or otherwise your nose is whether or not you have a ball on your chin, a cleft on your chin, nice big dimples like you have, <laughs> uh, all these sort of things. And so like the dimples, for example, they will go into the syphilitic category. So what I have is, is that I have sore psychosis and syphilis and the names are terrible. I yeah, I <laughs> I did. We really need to update them whenever I give a remedy a, 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 a client. I already have done that. I've done oh, good. about twenty years ago. I just, I just decided no, I've had enough of this sore sickness and psychosis. So what I did is that I tried to make it as innocuous as possible. Three primary miasms, three primary colors. I just gave each one a color. Sore is yellow. Psychosis is red. Syphilis is blue. And so what I did then is that, so your dimples, for example, they will go into the syphilitic column. And if people have got a bit of asymmetry or a longer chin, that goes into the syphilitic column. And then what I do at the end of it is that I add up those columns. And remember, what I'm looking for here is dominance. Mm. So whichever one is the more dominant, then that means that that dominance can only be formed because the internal energy is stronger. So each miasm is forming as many facial features as its energy allows. So the more that facial features that belong to one group, the more dominant I know it is. So I, in, in a case, makeup case where the vast majority are going to be in this blue or syphilitic column. Then I do the generals of the case, all the conditions that make your, your symptoms better or worse. So if you have a migraine, for example, and that migraine is worse when you drink coffee and it's worse in the mornings, it's better at night. I take all of those better and worse falls and I put them into a group. And if it's sulfur, Fuyer and mercury come up the top three. I know that sulfur and mercury I just leave behind and I go straight to the mercury and I give that. Mm, amazing. And it works like a dream. It, it really does work very, very well. And and lines too. So one, two, when people often frown, they'll have two yeah, I've got- between their eyes. <laughs> Not two. So one in the toric group. Uh, if it was <laughs> one line in the middle of the of the back, that will go into the psychotic group. And we've just we have got some 70, 75 different facial features we cover most people. And that's how that there I can work out before I give the remedy what group you belong to. So the chances of getting the remedy right are much, much higher. Mm-hmm. I just love that. And as you were talking, I was thinking. I just had a bit of an aha moment and it made me realize, I think we have so many different tools we can use in homeopathy. And I feel like it's such a blessing really, because each homeopath, we go on this journey of trying to find the tool that helps us the best. And that's, you know, that might be sensation method or intuitive homeopathy is something we've been talking about on the podcast lately. That's been coming to the forefront and the facial analysis. And 
it just feels endless. And I'm definitely still on that journey. I'm still dabbling with a little bit of everything, trying to find the one thing that really is my thing. But I like playing around at the moment. I always say I want to have all the toys. I want to play with all the homeopathy toys. But it is wonderful when you found your one thing like you have, and you've got a couple of decades now of really honing in on this and being an expert in this and being able to pass this knowledge on to other homeopaths is just brilliant. So thank you for your work. Oh, that's my pleasure. And and I like passing it on. I think I have a lot of patience and I try once, what the ones, look, you always get people who come and go, but those that stay with me for a little while, I try and train them up a little bit. Um, so what they do is, is that, yeah, I've even had patients come back to me and they'll say, okay, this, this happened during the week and this, you know, there was a great, because I treat with pandas and pandas is the very up and down. But, but it's, you know, this flare took place and I, I was normally on panic, but then I just thought, okay, what would Grant say? And then they'd go ahead and they'd do it. And sure enough, they'd get these, these results. It's very, very easy to use. The difference, I think, between the, the HFA method and some of the others that you're doing is that, and this probably says a lot more about me, is, is that it's objective. And that's what I liked about it. It didn't rely on my own prestige, my own abilities and whatever, my own interpretation. It's something that talks to me and it just says, this is the way nature is, where natural beings look, read it and go with it. Don't try and be better than nature, just go with nature. And so in that sense, I, I, I find it very grounding. Uh, I did like so much the interpretative stuff. It just didn't suit me. Not not necessarily because I wasn't good at it, but it's just the... Just the style. It's just you, a different style. Or, you, you, the chances of being right or wrong are still, you know, they're 50-50 for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the facial analysis takes the prejudice, our own prejudice out of it as well, because you're just looking at the face. That's what it is. Absolutely. And even with that, you know, there's, you, you can prejudice that. So what <laughs> I do is that before I choose any remedy, obviously I've got to do the face, but I will often do the face after I do a case too. I do it in that way because well, what I'd found was that if I preconceive what my asm that I think you are, I, I found myself asking confirmatory questions and I don't want to do that. So I just leave it. I, all I would do in a consult is just we look at the camera at each other, I ask you a series of questions and then afterwards, once I've got that information, then and only then will I think about doing the facial analysis because I don't want to be unprejudiced. I don't want to be prejudiced. I'm completely unprejudiced. Mm. Now, Grant, you very quickly touched on the PANS PANDAS before. Now, you've written a book about this as well, uh, PANDAS Reaching Out a Natural and Homeopathic Approach. Is that more for, I haven't got a copy yet. (laughs) Is that more for practitioners or for the general public? It's really for the general public. It's really just describing what homeopathy can do. And I think it's giving a little bit of commonality to the whole pandas thing because I think when pandas strikes the family, it can, it can really throw them in disarray and they can, they can over panic a little bit because they wonder whether or not their child is actually losing their minds. They wonder if they're ever going to get their child back. So essentially it was, uh, I don't know how many people, I don't know how many people would be under my care at any one moment with pandas, but probably 250 at any given minute of the day. Uh, and, and so I've collated a lot of information over the years and it was one, a reassurance that something can be done. You don't have to just accept this. And two, your child isn't going crazy in the long term. It might be a temporary insanity, but there is a reason for this. It is that it, 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 because you can see a commonality here, then you know that there is a pathological base. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the more individualized, perhaps, but 
then then you might be starting to get a bit suspicious. But when so many pandas kids will flare every time they get sick or flare every time there's a full moon or they'll start OCD behaviours or they'll start rages that they can't control. I guess the primary one was I wrote the book was that to let the parents know that this is to do with brain inflammation and this is to do with you need to understand an energetic response. Um, I think homeopathy has such great success with pandas and, and there's a difference between pandas and autism too. I, I sort of wanted to get this across too because there are some conditions that are very set. You know, if you look at a Down syndrome or what we used to call in the old days a, a retardation, which is all under the umbrella of an autistic spectrum diagnosis. But I almost have to get people to redefine ASD because it, it's so broad at times. Mm. If you get into that sort of Down syndrome retardation model, I mean, we can do some peripheral things, but we can never undown somebody, you know, whereas pandas itself is a condition where a child was completely normal, has either a strep infection or some other condition that inflames the brain. Generally, we think the basal ganglia, but it, you can't look at inflammation on a on, a, on an X-ray or an MRI, so it's hard to determine, but you can tell that because it affects both behaviour as in there's often violent behaviour as well as motor tics and all sorts. So the basal ganglia is one area that would actually look at and, and influence both of those areas, both motor and, as well as psychological. So then once that's inflamed, the child sort of stays in this flare anywhere between a, a week to years. Mm. And sometimes that flare will go up and down depending on conditions. Mm -hmm. But this is where homeopathy becomes absolutely essential. It's an energetic system. So therefore it's about, it's about the ups and downs of flow. Any condition that has ups and downs, homeopathy can treat. Anything that's just absolutely stable and baseline, we kind of have to accept. You know, like um, an amputated arm, as it's baseline. You don't have your arm back on good days and then it goes again on bad days. But we so, can give you remedies to make you accept the arm, the lost arm. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. We can treat the grief that goes mm. on. But even when you're talking about that sort of grief, often that that is that has its good days and its bad days sure. too. So the more that there are good and bad flowing in there, then you know that it's energy responsive. The moment that there's anything that's energy responsive, the best, the best medicine that you can use is homeopathy because it's the only one that caters for the flux. And so... I guess that's about it, really. I mean, I wrote it for parents so they can understand it. I wrote it for parents so that they can have some comfort. That's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. And with your decades of experience, have you seen an increase in pandas at all, or do you feel it's... When I first started treating this, I had absolutely no idea what it was, to be honest. I mean, I had, I had a, my very first person said that, you know, my child's been diagnosed with pandas and the first thing that I had to do was get them to explain what that was because I had really no understanding. Now, I don't know whether it's because pandas is on the rise or whether or not it's because we now have a name to give a set of conditions and, mm. and, and behaviours. I, I don't know which is which, but it certainly seems to be on the rise. I don't know why. I would love to know why. But it is, I think, a little bit of a barometer of what, you know, to just let us know that the energy of life is not where it should be with so many young people that are, are reacting like this. 
where I live is an interesting place. There, there's a, a Tibetan Lama up the road, a full-on Tibetan Lama. He comes occasionally to to see us. And I was asking him about autism and pandas one time, and he he sat down for a while and he said, I asked him, where do you think it all comes from? And he just said, too much noise. Mm. Uh, while that doesn't say much, I, you want to stop and think about that for a minute because he could be really onto something. There's just there's just too much frenetic, scattered energy that's going around, and and maybe these kids are just reacting to it. I I don't know. I I, I but it's it's a good enough reason. I, there's no other reason I can I can understand. I mean, you can go into sugar. You can go into pollutants. You can go into vaccination if you want. There's a thousand things you could go into. The reality is is that there is a bit of a problem going on and we're trying to treat it as best as we can. Absolutely. Um, I have only had a few cases of pandas in my clinic and pretty much every time antibiotics have been used and I have never has a client once said that it has been helpful. And what have you found with the use of antibiotics? Because it's not my area of expertise, but I mean, there's always a place for it, obviously. This is somebody who's just come out of, uh, yeah. you know, appendix surgery and thank God for antibiotics. But how have you, what have you found the role of antibiotics in the case of pandas? Yeah, look, I have seen success cases with antibiotics, but not long-term success cases. Sorry, that's what I should, I should have clarified. It's only ever been short-term, maybe a month or two. And then yeah, it's just relapses. I've, I've seen people that are, have kids that have been on it for longer periods than that, I've seen kids that have been on uh, antibiotic treatment for years. As a matter, wow. and what we can do is is that we can get them to reduce that. So when, when look, really heavy antibiotic use through the administration of things like IVIG, that can that can be fifty fifty. In fact, that can really be fifty fifty. And when it goes bad, it really goes bad. So, so I'm not necessarily promoting stuff like that. All I'm saying is, is that most of my patients are online and, and most of them are, are American. And so by the time that they come to see me, you got to bear in mind what's happening. They've got a sick kid. They're coming to see a practitioner who is an alternate practitioner from the other side of the world. So by the time someone has reached that sort of desperation point, they have been through everything. So it's very, by the time a patient comes to see me, they're usually on a cocktail of things. The only thing that I ask is is that they don't add anything new to when we start treatment because I have a snapshot of where you are right from this point don't stop anything either because I, then I won't know. I won't know what's going on. So I ask you not to stop or start any treatment other than what I'm about to do and then we will reassess from there. Over time, then if they're happy, I mean, some people, some of these drugs are pretty serious because they're, they're psychotic episodes that we're talking about. So that I do recommend that they go to their GP and have that managed as they come down. But others like antibiotics, people can, which parents can start to withdraw that themselves. One of the things that's, so we get two things out of that. One is that this idea that homeopathy can't, has to work under pristine conditions that you, you, you know, it, it won't, won't work if there's an antibiotics. It won't work if there's any inflammatories or steroids or even especially if it won't work if there's antipsychotics because they're really harsh. I have not found that to be true. And honestly, quite frankly, homeopathy, if it's, if it's going to deal with illnesses like pandas that change entire behaviors, I mean, I've had kids that don't even recognize their parents. I've had kids that won't come out of their cupboards. I've had, I've had kids that have bitten through the collarbones of their parents in rages. I've had kids that have jumped from a second story through the window. Wow. I mean, these, these are crazy, crazy things. And if homeopathy can manage to calm these things down, these complaints, 
I mean, the idea that it can be negated by toothpaste or coffee or, and yet still treat these heavy duty complaints, your homeopathy is going to be negated by a cup of Nescafe. (laughs) That is so well said. I absolutely love that you've said that. And Actually, I've been waiting to bring in this quote and I think now is a good time because you wrote something that I love and I'm going to get this printed out and framed and put up in my clinic because I've never seen it anywhere before. You wrote, homeopathy is the only system that swept and changed the medical world within the space of one lifetime. I've never thought about it that way, but that is so true. It's what was one lifetime and there's a whole incredible system of medicine was created and I agree with you. Homeopathy is so much more powerful than we give it credit for. We want to think that, you know, if the, if you, your hand touched the pillow, then you've antidoted it. Or if you, uh, you know, just had a cup of coffee 10 minutes earlier, it's not going to work. But you are so right. Um, that's an interesting quote. I'm, I'm glad I wrote that. <laughs> I've never, I have never read any of my books. I put the full stop down and then I just let them out. So I don't know what I've written or what I've <laughs> That's a nice point. So, but yeah, I, I think we underestimate how powerful, but we also over, we underestimate how forgiving it is too. I mean, homeopathy is a very, very forgiving medicine. You can get it wrong many times and you're not necessarily upsetting this person's life or you're not changing their vital force for, for the worst permanently you know there's a lot of dangers we keep getting especially when you go through homeopathic college i mean some people come out and they're almost too afraid to use it but i've seen that very very forgiving all you have to do when you get it wrong and you'll know when you get it wrong because symptoms turn back right and so you don't you don't you don't have to be Einstein to figure out when someone's worse. If someone's worse, you just stop. And what do you do to negate that? You redo the case. In our case, you redo the case to make sure you've got it right. You look at your repertorization again and you choose the next best medicine. So the best remedy is always the best antidote for a mistake that you made prior to it. Okay, so you don't have to think about remedies to antidote or specifics to antidote. Just get the remedy right, the next one right, and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Now, you've mentioned about homeopathy uh, as an energy medicine as well. Do you want to talk to our listeners a little bit about, um, maybe a little bit about the vital force? It's it's tricky to get all these things into little bits because as we all know, when we do, when we do lectures on these in homeopathic college, you know, it's like several hour lectures, but just, you mentioned the vital force earlier in the, in the, in the podcast, if you can quickly maybe touch on that and just homeopathy as energy medicine, just depending on whatever your time allows, because after that, we'll finish, we'll finish off after that. Okay. I, I want a fair bit of time. So we'll let, oh, beautiful. So yeah, the, the vital force is essentially, look, there has always been throughout history, a, a very, there has been materialists and there have been vitals. The materialists say there is nothing more than what our five senses can perceive. The vitalists are saying, no, there is more than that. We, there is a part of us that is non-physical, and not only is it non-physical, it's almost the most central part of us. To quote that would be to look at things like sports and emotions have absolutely no physical basis. And yet they are the most interesting part of it. So when you look at just our physical bodies, you know, and yes, it's true that we can't just rip out one liver and put it into another person, but it's certainly not the most interesting part of us. Most in- how we define ourselves is usually via our intellect, our psychological and our emotional being what we believe in, what we crave, what we don't like, the future we'd like to live. All of these things are non-material. You can't point to them and say, there they are. So the fact that they are non-physical, that non-physical part 
is what vitalists say make up life. And, but more than that, there are a lot of, there's, there's just a lot of experiments and a lot of indications that things like the mind don't even belong to the brain. I mean, things like out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences or even things that are very common like uh, deja vu dreams where you go into the future and then suddenly you're in the present remembering that in the past you dreamt of the future and the future is now. I mean, this sort of ability to be able to see in the future, bring it back, and this this non-physical element is what vitalism is about. And Hahnemann talked about it as he called it the vital force. It's the same as the chi and acupuncture and so on. So it's an aspect which is energetic or non-physical. And what we do in homeopathy is we make our remedies vital as well. And we make our remedies vital because we're trying to interact directly with that vital force. And so when things happen like a shock and then that shock then filters down into the physical body, what a homeopath would say is the vital force was disrupted first and then you get these flow-on physical effects. So the vital force is divided into a couple of different aspects, but essentially the aspect we're concerned with is it's a program that is designed to not only animate but look after the body. It is the information that tells the platelets to go to a particular area when you've cut yourself, right? It's the platelet, it's the knowledge. And that information, that knowledge body that is inherited is what Hahnemann talks about the vital force. And our, what our remedies do is, is that they go into when that information has been disrupted and they bring it back to its normal pattern and its normal cycle. So if you take chronic disease, if arthritis, if you're, if you start developing arthritis at the age of 50, it also meant that you didn't develop arthritis for the first 49 years. And so something has gone wrong with the program. If we can unprogram that program, then we should start to give you some relief. It's as simple as that, really. Mm-hmm. Grant, you have a way of explaining things, things that I've always known, but in a way that I've never thought about before. It's um, really lovely listening to you. <laughs> now, I'm just thinking if maybe, because um, I'm always, when I do these podcasts, I'm always, I have my, these mothers in my head that are listening to this, that have children, there's some imbalance there, and they are listening to this podcast, hoping to find something that will help them, an yeah. aha moment, or maybe they're listening to it and they know a friend or a family member that's struggling with something. And my heart's wish is that they will listen to this podcast and there will be an episode and something will jump out at them and they will feel that there is a glimmer of hope. And then they will go and seek out a homeopath to work with. Have you got any final notes that you would like to say to families with children with pandas on what homeopathy can offer for them or any any bits of hope or any message that you want to get across to families with pandas? Well, the, the main message is that something can be done. Even if you have not experienced all that much in the past, or you've been through all the different treatments, you've got to understand that homeopathy is a completely different way of looking at the same problem. So where we might be looking at the same landscape, but we're looking at it from a different direction, and it gives you an entirely new way of being able to approach the same problem. No one is saying that medicine is wrong. They have their, their, their strengths, but they have their weaknesses. And the non-adoption of vitalism, in fact, their fervent rejection of vitalism is their weakest link. It's not their strongest. They will tell you that that's science's, medical science's strongest link. 
But to, to be able to divorce things like emotions, hopes, thoughts, dreams, ambitions, self-appraisal from the equation of what's going to happen to your body, well, that's just nonsense. Mm. So, but the inclusion of those things, the inclusion of that behavior and that mental outlook is already by its very nature bringing vitalism back into the argument. So if you have tried a lot of non-vital medicaments and nothing has happened, then I'm with you. Please search it out. Search out people that have this different approach. And I can tell you firsthand through hundreds and hundreds of people that things can be done. They, they absolutely can be done. I'm not, you notice I'm not necessarily saying I can cure 100%, but can I bring the temperature down on those symptoms that are occurring? Absolutely we can. How far down will depend on a whole range of things. It depends on diet. It depends on the stresses that are going on in life. It depends on the other family dynamics. You know, there are other people that might have two pandas kids. One starts getting better, but the other pandas kids attacking the, the other one all the time where you can already see an obstacle to cure right there. So I can guarantee that something can be done. The extent of what can be done depends on too many exogenous circumstances to make a promise. But the promise that something can be done, yes, that's there. That's beautiful. I just know that somebody is going to listen to this message and just have a sense of calm in them, just knowing that there's somebody there that will listen to them and um, will be able to help. Now, Grant, where can people get hold of you? We will list it in the show notes as well, but how how can people get hold of your work? And you've got four books as well. So yeah, where can they purchase these? Now, this is, this is where I'm absolutely terrible at this. <laughs> well, I'll just put it in the show notes. <laughs> you can put it in the show notes. And, and if you, the website is BCCH, Victor Charlie Charlie Horse. And um, no, Victor Charlie Charlie Horse. Dot org. <laughs> That's okay. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> If they just go there, we've got so much. We look, we, we, we have a site where we are trying to be as open as what we can. We share case notes. We talk all through it. We do. There is just hour after hour after hour of free information for anyone to search. Amazing. Starting. And I found a few videos of you on YouTube as well. You're famous. (laughs) <laughs> that was for years that's a urgent <laughs> yeah just for older ones well Grant it has been such a blessing to speak with you today thank you so much for helping these families and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with homeopaths worldwide as well I really appreciate well, it thank you Eugenie it was lovely to meet you and thank you for sharing your time it's a pleasure